Well, hi everyone, uh, and welcome to A Fortunate Universe. My name's Josa, and I'm a member of the Christian Union here at UWA. Uh, we love helping everyone at UWA uh, investigate for themselves the good news of Jesus. But, as part of that, we love encouraging students to think about whether or not there's a God at all. Well, today we have with us Dr. Luke Barnes. He's a Christian postdoctoral researcher from Sydney whose work involves topics of cosmology and galaxy formation. He's also written a PhD with an atheist supervisor on the topic of the fine-tuning of the universe and has since published a book titled A Fortunate Universe. Today, Dr. Barnes is going to explore this idea with us, how the universe is fine-tuned in such a way as to make our existence possible. So, will you join me as we welcome Dr. Barnes up to talk to us. Right. Hello, everyone. Uh, let me just click this on. Slight correction. The title of my PhD was, in fact, uh, Studying Galaxy Formation Through Lyman Alpha in Emission and Absorption. I'm sure you've all read it. No? <laughs> Never mind. Um, I'm told by a friend they have a tradition at Cornell University where what you do is you put your PhD, once it's uh, printed in book form, in the library and you include in it a $5 note and a short note saying, if you find this, please take it. So you can then come back 20, 30, 40 years later and find the same $5 note that no one has found. Um, just for anyone who's thinking about doing a PhD, uh, there's some encouragement for you. Right. Um, let's go. I'm going to talk to you about a particular puzzle which has since disappeared from the screen. Come on, HDMI cable, help me out here. Are we back? We're back. So I've got a puzzle for you. And it's a, a puzzle that has an awful lot of scientists scratching their heads. This is a proper puzzle, not that we're just sort of pretending. Uh, in the middle of last year, I was at a conference organised by a group at the University of Oxford called Cons uh, Consolidating Fine Tuning, uh, which was all about this particular um, conundrum that I'm about to present to you. So let me get started. I'm an astronomer, and one of the reasons that we do astronomy is because the universe looks like this. You don't even need a great big telescope to see the universe look like that. This was done by a particularly talented uh, guy, but he only just had a, a normal SLR camera and uh, a night off and some patience and some skill, and that's what the universe looks like. Uh, the wonderful thing about it is the harder you look at the universe, the bigger the telescope you build, the more beautiful it seems. So even the most mundane stuff like a spare gas cloud just sort of lying around looks like this. That's where stars are born. Uh, when a star uh, finishes burning one fuel source and needs to fire up to burn a different fuel source, if it runs out of hydrogen, say, and needs to start burning helium, then uh, in the process it needs to sort of rearrange itself, get a bit denser and a bit hotter, and in the process it, it, it uh, creates what's called a planetary nebula, like this. This is just the random stuff lying around in the universe. Um, if a star can't, fire up a new energy source, it will sometimes uh, collapse catastrophically and then blow us off smithereens, and we get to watch that explosion from a distance in the form of a supernova remnant. And if a whole heap of stars get together and have a family photo, then that looks like a galaxy. <laughs> and this is what we see. The harder you look at the universe, the more amazing, beautiful stuff you see out there. Um, like me, if you're like me and you're a bit of a maths nerd, there's another level of beauty there for you to admire. Um, the basic laws that govern all the stuff that makes up the universe and that governs the universe as a whole are mathematically quite wonderful. So 
uh, I'm going to give you a quick introduction to uh, what the universe is made of, and that's going to head us, head us towards this puzzle. So very, very briefly, there is a sub-discipline uh, of physics called particle physics, and to sum up that discipline quite simply, it goes like this, grab stuff in the universe, smash it together, see what comes out, try to break it up into the smallest possible bit you can to see what the universe is really made of. That's particle physics. To the point where there is now underneath uh, Switzerland and France something called the Large Hadron Collider, which is a 27 kilometer around tube about, around which are accelerated protons, which we then smash uh, into uh, each other to see what happens in the debris. So far, the smallest thing we've seen to come out of ordinary matter, uh, there are three particles that make up matter as we know it. They are known as the up quark, the down quark, and the electron. Remember those, they might win you a pub quiz at some point. Um, so, we smash together the ordinary stuff that everything's made of, and that's the smallest stuff that comes out for the moment. Okay? What can we do with these bits? Well, I've shown you the first thing you can do. You can put a proton and a neutron together. Um, two ups and a down makes a proton, and an up and two down makes a neutron if you're in your kitchen later on. Uh, and that's the, the stuff that we're familiar with, protons and neutrons. Because if you put protons and neutrons together, um, thanks to something called the strong force, you can make a nucleus, uh, and then that's the sort of the middle bit for all atoms. How many protons you put in the centre of the nucleus determines what kind of nucleus it is, and all the different ways to do that uh, gives you all the chemical elements. So we start off with three pieces, and we've now ended up with the periodic table of the elements, so they're all there. Um, in particular, if you put two nuclei close to each other, so I take a helium nucleus and oxygen, and another, uh, sorry, hydrogen, oxygen, another hydrogen, and put them close and let the electrons go around, the electrons don't just stick around their own home nucleus, they take sort of a complicated path around the whole thing, uh, and they will bind those nuclei together, and that in two sentences is chemistry. There's nothing to it. <laughs> if you're a physicist. <laughs> because we don't care about any of the other details. Um, our universe is really, really great at this. If you take hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon and phosphorus and put it in this particular order, the electrons will wind their way through the whole lot and bind the whole thing together, and that's DNA. That's, you can literally write the instructions for a person uh, down the spine of the DNA, the thing that holds the two strands together with these particular uh, letters. Uh, a, T, C, and G. Now, uh, if we then hand that problem off to a biologist, which I am not, uh, apparently you can use the proteins that are coded for in DNA, some assembly required, you can make a uh, cell. Cells are phenomenally complicated, they're absolutely wonderful, and I'm very glad that I don't study them. Because, for example, if a cell wants to get a particular molecule from one side to the other, there are, it, it quite literally puts a little address on it, loads it into a little truck, sends that truck down a highway where other molecules check the address, and if it reaches the right address, then it unloads that molecule to be put to work. So every molecule, every cell in your body is doing that right now, if one of you have for breakfast. Uh, if you put enough cells together, you can, of course, make people. And so, with some assembly required, here's the short story, you can turn up and down quarks into small people, although better methods are available. So the summary is, I love doing that joke to high schoolers because they don't get it. Um, <laughs> the summary is you're made of stuff, 
and we have a good understanding about how all that stuff works, about the basic properties of that stuff, right? We've boiled it down to three basic pieces for all the stuff you're familiar with. Um, and if you're a theoretical physicist like myself, so I'm a, I'm a theorist, no one lets me anywhere near the telescopes, uh, what we really want to know is why it has the property, why these things have the properties that they do. And in particular, it, it points towards a certain uh, set of questions about what if. What if things have been different? As a way of getting a handle on why are things the way they are, we can, answer, we can ask the related question, what if things have been a little bit different? So for example, what if gravity was stronger? You're all familiar with gravity. You're all sitting on the floor, no one's sitting on the roof. That's gravity. Uh, what if the electron were more massive? So one of the most basic properties of the, the sort of Lego bits of the universe is how heavy is one of these things? And there's a number for that, we can measure it. But what if it had been a bit heavier or a bit lighter? What if atoms were more stable or less stable? There's various forces that come together in an atom to hold it together. What if we messed around with those forces? This one's going to sound like it's from Doctor Who, but what if there were different numbers and dimensions of space and time? When we write down the laws of nature in the form of an equation, we can often write it down in a form that doesn't know how many dimensions of space and time there are. We then have to tell the equation that there are three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. So, for example, we can write down uh, an equation that describe waves, or that describe how uh, heat uh, dissipates, or the, the equations for space-time and special relativity, and we then have to tell that equation three dimensions of space, one dimension of time, but what if we changed that? And so the, the question is, what kind of universe could there have been, sort of counterfactually? What could the universe have been like if we just took the, the, the equations that we know and just changed these numbers, these basic properties of the universe? So let me give you a few examples of, of what happens. Here's our picture of the atom, a lovely classical picture with no sign of quantum mechanics, which is wonderful. Uh, the electron's going around, and we have a proton and a neutron stuck together. This is, for those playing one at home, deuterium. Um, what happens if we change the masses of the fundamental piece of the universe, right? Up quark, down quark, electron, they have a mass, right? You've got a really small set of scales, you can put one on. Good luck. But there is a number that comes out of that. What if we change those numbers? Now, you might think all that's going to do is make atoms slightly heavier or lighter, but that's not quite what happens. And the reason is uh, because of E equals mc squared, Einstein's most famous equation, that matter, mass in particular, is a form of energy. And uh, in the universe, energy is kind of like currency. If you want something to happen, you have to be able to pay for it. Uh, in energy, and if there's not enough energy around, then that process isn't going to happen. And so if you start changing the fundamental masses of stuff, you start changing the kind of process that can and can, uh, can, cannot happen in the universe. You change the budget. Okay? So in this analogy, the way to make something stable is to make it broke. Right? Like if you're stuck at home and you've got no money, you can't really do anything. So if we want a certain system like the nuclear atom to be stable, just make sure there's not enough energy around for anything to happen, in particular anything where one of the pieces gets ripped off. Um, this is obviously, we would like some things in the universe to be stable, we would like to make, wake up tomorrow with roughly the same DNA that we have today. So this is an important property. It turns out actually, if we 
uh, change the masses of these fundamental pieces, it's quite easy to make it the case that protons and neutrons no longer want to stick to each other. That system, if you make it, will have enough energy to fall apart, and so it will fall apart. Uh, actually, we can do a little better than that. Uh, if we change things in another way, we can have it so that instead of the electron orbiting around the nucleus, it will actually spiral into the nucleus, combine with a proton, and form a neutron. Um, and so that's the end of all atoms. So here's what happens in these sorts of universes. Here is the periodic table, and just for some fun, this is the periodic table as astronomers use it. It's coloured according to where that particular element is made in the universe. So hydrogen and helium are made in the Big Bang. Uh, if you want to make this important little cluster over here that are yellow, so there's some very important biological elements there, you need a small star. A small star will do quite nicely. Uh, if you want to make some of the green ones, you're going to need a bigger star because it's going to need to get hotter to sort of build them. Okay? The way you make all of these is you start with small things and you smash nuclei together until they make bigger things. That's there you go, there's stellar nuclear synthesis for you in one sentence. Um, if you want to make these orange ones, even big stars, the green ones won't help you, you are going to need a supernova, you're going to actually need to blow your star up, and in the explosion these larger elements will be made, including, uh, you may be familiar, that's gold. So if you have any gold on you, that was probably made in a supernova explosion. And there's a bunch down the bottom here that nature hasn't bothered to make, so we made them ourselves in a lab for reasons that aren't totally clear to me. <laughs> so what happens if you, if you just mess with these fundamental pieces a little bit, just change the, the budget of the universe by changing their mass, uh, so that protons and neutrons no longer stick to each other, the periodic table looks like this. So in this universe, the chemistry exam goes like this. Question one, what is the element? <laughs> right? Um, the good news is, printing off a periodic table in this universe would be really cheap. <laughs> Question two, what is the chemical reaction? Because there's only one. You can put two hydrogen atoms together to make a hydrogen molecule. And that is the end of the exam, because there's nothing else to ask. There's also nothing to write the questions on, and no one to ask. <laughs> so it's a real failure all around. It's a huge shame there would be no one around to take that exam. Um, but that's the way it would work. Uh, there are other ways of, of doing it which are even worse. Um, you can make it so that the, the fundamental particle that you can make out of quarks has a charge of plus two, which, which if you then make an atom out of that, it won't stick to anything else. It has, instead of having the chemistry of hydrogen, it has the chemistry of helium. Right. So that, that exam goes like this. What is the element? Helium. End of exam. You can't make any molecules out of helium, it doesn't stick to itself via chemical bonds. So this particular fact, that small changes to the fundamental constants of nature, end up with a universe which is mathematically fine, but pretty hopeless if you wanted to do anything complicated like life. This is called the fine-tuning of the universe for life. Um, at this point I often pause when I'm talking to high school students to explain what this is. So you're possibly the last generation I may not have to explain that to. You can all go Google that later on. Although I did see a record shop in Perth the other day, so apparently the analogue technology is still going well over here. So this is the idea. The, the picture is, alright, 
We don't know why the electron has the mass it does, but in our equations we can at least give it uh, a range. We could say what would happen if it was over here or over there, if it was twice as heavy, five times as heavy, ten times less heavy, all of that. And what we find is that if you want the universe to do something interesting, like make anything bigger than a proton, you have to get this number into a quite a small range. The picture there being, if you want to dial into your favourite radio station, you better hit exactly this frequency, if it's a bit this way or a bit that way, and you get static. We can do the same game with the universe as a whole, uh, looking at uh, the, the numbers that describe how our universe uh, expands. So, in our universe, we can run simulations about how galaxies form, and this is something that... Uh, the Eagle Collaboration has been doing, which I'm a part. Uh, it's actually something that's quite a speciality of your astronomy department here. They're very good at this kind of thing. Um, so the, the short story is you get a whopping great big computer and you represent a certain piece of the universe by breaking it up into particles that represent a certain amount of mass. You then, it's a bit like a computer game, then you program the particles to obey the laws of nature. So they will feel an attractive force of gravity to each other they will feel pressure forces when they get hot and close together. If things get dense enough, they'll form stars, and uh, at the end of their lives, some stars will blow up, so you can actually see some supernova explosions going off here. Um, at the end of all of this, the, the real hero of the story has been gravity. The universe starts off almost perfectly smooth, uh, but any small lump or bump in the universe, because gravity is attractive, will be able to pull in more matter, and so get even more massive. So the rich get richer is the short story of how we get structure in our universe. The final end point here is, what, is what's called the, the cosmic web. So you have very dense knots of the universe where galaxies are forming and doing, uh, making stars. And then in, in, you have voids where the matter is largely being emptied, emptied out. And then in between these large knots, you have streams of matter where the gravity is still trying to pull on it to decide which way it's going to go to this galaxy or that galaxy. What we've been doing um, at the University of Sydney with a our colleague here at Western Sydney, uh, Western Australia, sorry, just moved to Western Sydney, um, uh, Pascal Alagi and uh, collaborators in Durham as part of the Eagle Collaboration is taking this exact code that produced this right, and you know, it's a massive piece of computer software that you run on a supercomputer for a couple of weeks and then make a pretty picture out of it. Um, to take that and change some of the numbers that describe how our universe expands, what it's made of and uh, what happens in the beginning. In particular, there was a, there was a number that we were uh, interested in called the cosmological constant. Around about 20 years ago, we discovered that the, the expansion of our, the universe is accelerating. So pick a galaxy out there, it's not only moving away from us, it's moving away faster today than it was yesterday. So things are really sort of moving away from us. Um, there must be some sort of form of energy in the universe that's doing that, and because we don't know what that is, we call it dark energy. The only reason you would call anything dark energy is if you have no idea what it is. Right? Um, there's also dark matter. You can reach your own conclusions about whether we know what dark matter is. But the short story is that we have this number. It describes the way our universe works. We can measure it. 
but we don't know why it is what it is, and so we want to ask the question, what if it were different? The what if game. And so we ran a couple of simulations. So, uh, is this going to play straight away? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. It's not, good. Okay, so here's what you're about to see. On this one, this is basically going to be like our universe. So structure's going to form, uh, everything's going to come together nicely. In the middle is what would have happened if you start from the same point, but have ten times more of this universe accelerating stuff. Whatever it is. And on this one, it's going to be what if you had a hundred times more of this universe accelerating stuff. And so here's what happens. The initial stages look pretty similar, because the universe doesn't accelerate until later. But while the story here is similar, of things continuing to form and forming the galaxies, over here, the universe has started to accelerate earlier, before things started to really form. And so this, bit, this universe is kind of emptying itself out, and at the end of the day, not much interesting has happened. This is what the cosmological constant does. We find ourselves in a universe in which interesting stuff happens, amidst a set of possibilities in which actually this case, and worse, is really the standard. The set of possibilities that make sense within the laws of nature for this particular number is, on this scale, you could do, uh, see that's 100 times larger, you make 10 to the power of 120 times larger, which is a big number, certainly. Uh, but only a factor of 100 more, and you started just sort of ruining the universe for any kind of structure. I'm going to play this again, because this represents like three months on a supercomputer or something, and we just <laughs> boiled it down to 30 seconds for you. So let's all just enjoy the effort that went into this little movie. There's <laughs> um, a press release coming out about this paper on Monday, so hopefully more people get to enjoy this particular video. Um, good. So what happens if you just took that huge range of possibilities, we don't know why we are where we are, so let's just see what else would happen. In the vast majority of universes, you don't get interesting stuff forming. What you get is protons that are just isolated in empty space. And the most that happens is another proton comes along and bounces off. And that's literally all that ever happens in the universe. You never get things collecting together even to form like a solid, let alone form you know, planets or anything interesting like that. So in this universe, the only children's story you could write is one called The Lonely Proton. <laughs> <laughs> we can change some other numbers, ruin some other things. Um, if you get a very good telescope um, with a very good filter, then uh, the sun looks like this. Right? If you look at the sun with your bare eyes, it will not look like this, you will just burn your eyes out. So don't. Right? That's what it looks like, it's all this um, uh, interaction and uh, uh, stuff going on on the surface. What's really happening at the centre of a star is that there's a fight between two forces. There's always the attractive force of gravity pulling in, so something must be pushing out to keep the star stable, because the whole thing doesn't just collapse. And that thing is the pressure due to heat. Uh, that heat is sourced by nuclear reactions at the centre. If we make gravity a bit stronger, then something interesting happens. So in the sun, for example, if the sun decided to contract a little bit, uh, it would get denser, it would get hotter, those reactions would fire up, it would heat up and fight back against that contra contraction and go back to where it was. Uh, if the sun expanded a bit, it would cool off, 
it would get a bit cooler, gravity would bring it back to where it was. So the sun is stable, right? It's still going to be there tomorrow. Um, if you make gravity stronger, past a certain limit, um, stars lose the ability to react reasonably to uh, perturbations. So if the sun pulses a bit, instead of those pulses settling down, those pulses get larger and larger until eventually the star blows itself apart. And so it's not that hard actually to make a universe in which anything big enough to burn is big enough to blow itself to smithereens. So we live in a universe where this happens rather than just sort of explosive, chaotic, slightly crazy stars. So there's a couple of examples of what is known as the fine tuning of the universal life. Your uh, career ambitions involve being a super villain, and we've got some other examples about how to ruin a universe. Um, and so, we, there are six chapters in this book dedicated to how can I completely ruin the universe, which sounds like a pretty odd thing, but it's the right kind of person is just amazing at all of this. <laughs> so, I, all the wrong kind of person, obviously. Um, I wrote this book with uh, Gary Lewis, who's a professor at the University of Sydney. He was my uh, honours and master's supervisor, and now my colleague. Um, we wrote the first seven chapters of the book together, just summarising what's going on in the scientific literature about all of these interesting issues. Uh, and then from chapter eight, we tried to work out what on earth was going on. What does all of this mean? Because, uh, as was mentioned before, I'm a Christian, and Gerain is an atheist. So we wrote seven chapters together, and apart from one footnote, which you can go and buy the book and enjoy yourself, uh, where we disagreed, uh, we basically agreed on all everything that was going on in those chapters. So, look for a footnote that starts, at this point our heroic laws disagreed about dot dot dot. <laughs> so this is a kind of scientific case where actually most of the science has reasonably settled. There's still stuff to do. Obviously we're still doing simulations about how all this works. But the question that comes up is, the question we deal with in, in chapter 8, what on earth does all of this mean? What Geraint thinks it means is that we are living in something called the multiverse which has, for some reason, started turning up in comic books. So this says, Infinite Crisis Fight for the Multiverse. And Batman is about to punch whoever that is. Um, so there's a, in the scientific literature on the multiverse, there's a depressing shortage of Batman. But <laughs> this is the idea. So, so it, the explanation goes a bit like this. Why does anyone win the lottery? Well, lots of people buy different tickets. And you need those two things, right? If you had two people buying different tickets, then it would be very unlikely that anyone won the lottery. And if a million people all bought the same ticket, the same numbers, that wouldn't help either. So you need lots of people buying different tickets. So the idea is simple. Yes, if you pick a set of fundamental properties for the universe at random, you're very unlikely to get a life-spinning universe. But perhaps out there, far beyond what our telescopes can see, there are literally different universes. There are universes that have different fundamental laws, or at least different fundamental properties of the stuff in the universe. There are, if you go far enough that way, way further than our telescope can see, you would find an electron with a different mass, for example, and just keep going out and you'll find all of these places out there. And the other half of this explanation that you need is obviously, if the universe fails to make life, there's no one in it to scratch their heads and go, I wonder why the universe is the way it is. So you would only ask this question in a universe where things are seemingly miraculously right for life. So the picture that comes out of this uh, is that if we can zoom back in our universe, 
what we would see is that our universe, which does all the wonderful things like stars and galaxies and planets and uh, people, would be sort of lost in a sea of completely dead universes which didn't quite pick the right numbers. So over here, you know, the, it, everything expanded too fast and so nothing interesting happened. Over here, um, you know, the periodic table didn't exist, so it was just protons bouncing off each other and that's all that ever happened. But lost in the sea somewhere, there will be our universe. So this is an option. And it's an option that you, as a cosmologist, there's, there's a couple of ways you can think you might be able to test it. You won't be able to do what you'd love to do as a scientist and say, let's go to one of these other universes and actually have a look at it. There's no sort of direct confirmation. But you could ask, okay, if you have some idea about how various properties are distributed, uh, statistically, among this whole set, you could ask whether we are at least typical of that distribution. And so you can get a start that way. Um, the idea that I defend in chapter 8 is the idea that there is a fine tuner in the universe. So, an analogy for this, I think, comes from video games. Um, anyone else put 80 hours into Zelda? <laughs> Just me? Alright, fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just, just lock this away for later on. Um, I started playing one of the old Zelda games a couple of years ago, and my kids started watching it, and they, um, Daddy was somehow in a movie, because they were like four, so they didn't really understand what was going on. And so they started to request that I play a video game. And so we started using it as a reward, and so I was actually... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there is no finer moment as a parent when you, you're always just bluffing along, but to actually say, clean your room and I'll play a video game. <laughs> and it works! <laughs> I mean, probably the smartest thing I've done in my life. Sorry! Um, lock that away, that's gold. If you learn nothing else from this, put that away. Um, got a lot of high fives from fellow parents about that one. Okay, so. If, if you're familiar with this game, there's an entire world here that's, that's created in, in sort of modern video games where everything sort of works by some sort of rules. So you could imagine after various bad guys have been defeated that, you know, the characters start trying to work out the rules of their particular game. So they would work out there's a certain set of fundamental things in their universe that their stuff is made out of. If I take the, the sword off uh, his back and the tree, that the tree falls over, and all these sorts of things about how their universe works. And you can imagine a state where actually this, they, they practically discover the source code in one form or another. But at the level of there's a tree, there's a this, there's a that. Um, once they've done that, they could actually sort of sit back and look at the rules of their universe, and then another set of questions would, would come up. Okay? Questions like, okay, why these particular rules rather than any other rules? Right? Why are we in Zelda rather than some other game? Pong. Yeah. Old school. Um, why, is, why is there this universe at all? And in particular, they might think, okay, uh, if they have some sort of handle about how hard it is to create a universe from scratch, they might realise actually you need a lot of the stuff here to work together, otherwise you get glitches or you get a boring universe and you get a game that doesn't work, or those sorts of things. So there's a level of questions about how the universe works, about how they would do physics in their universe, right? And then, even if they totally nailed all those questions, there would be a deeper level of questions that they are simply raised but cannot touch, right? Why are we in Hyrule rather than, um, yeah, 
Mario Brothers or something, is not a question that you can answer in terms of the rules of Hyrule. It's just a deeper level of question. And I think fine-tuning is kind of pointing us towards this deeper level. Um, suppose there's some future point at which um, you know Einstein's great 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 granddaughter walks up to uh, the whiteboard at a physics conference and actually writes down the rules of our universe. Right? Up it comes on the board, and it'll be hard to know that we were done. But suppose, in fact, we were actually done. This would be like you know Link working out all the rules of Hyrule. Um, we'd still have an awful lot of questions about why there is a universe at all. Why it is the way it is. And in particular, why, amongst all the other ways the universe could have been, we got this particular way, and a way that allows the existence of you know, physical agents like us. So the principle I think that we can invoke here, which, will, um, which is sort of a general principle from probability theory, and it goes like this. The question you want to ask is, what would we expect to be the case if a theory were true? This is something we ask in all scientific theory. So here's a simple example. You're watching, uh, a safe has been robbed, and you're watching the, the security camera footage, and you see that the robber walks up to the safe and correctly enters the code for the safe on the first attempt, opens the safe, takes all the stuff. So you might think, okay, how did that happen? What theory about the robber could we have that explains this? So A, you might think it was an inside job. Someone who knew the code told the code to the robber, and that's what happened. Or you might think B, that they just guessed the code. This is the luckiest robber we've ever seen. They've walked up and just gone, bam, and oh, amazing, and it's taken all the stuff. What would we expect to be the case if theory were true? Right? If you're uh, that way inclined, it's called the likelihood from probability theory. Um, we can apply this here. If you thought it was an inside job, what you would expect to be the case when you watch the security footage is that they would walk up, put the right, right code in the first time, and take all the stuff. Right? Now that's not certain, it doesn't have to be certain. Maybe they got told the wrong code, or they put a digit in wrong, or whatever. But that's what you would expect at a fairly high level of probability. If you thought that this guy guessed the code, what you would expect overwhelmingly is that they walked up, put in a code, and got it wrong. And they could do that all night and still get it wrong. It's a decent safe, say it needs 12 numbers to get into or something. That's a trillion possibilities. There's no way you it's very unlikely that you would guess the code. So what would we expect to be the case if the theory were true? So now let's think about the universe as a whole. There's something called naturalism, right? which is the idea that physical stuff, natural stuff, is the only stuff. Right? So if, if you're a naturalist, then you're an atheist, but not all atheists are naturalists. But let's focus on naturalism for the moment. Suppose you thought natural stuff was the only stuff. Right? So, and when, when, our, when Einstein's whatever granddaughter writes the stuff on the board, the fundamental rules of our universe, that's reality done. There's nothing else to be said. All those other questions down below just don't have answers. What would we expect the universe to be like if that's what we thought was true? And here's where the problem starts. It's a bit like the problem here. There's a huge set of possible codes, and if you guess the code, there's no particular reason to guess the correct one. And so that's where the very, uh, very low probability for this idea comes from. If you're a naturalist, you're thinking, what sort of universe could there have been? Well, there's all the mathematically possible ways that a universe could be. Right? There's, I'm a theoretical physicist. We have loads of equations. Right? You see a mathematical library? They're big. 
There's all of those ways the universe could have been. Because natural stuff's the only stuff, there's no deeper principle telling you which one of those is likely to be. And so it seems to be in this case. Huge set of possibilities, no reason for it to be this particular way. On the other hand, if you look at theism from a historical perspective, obviously it's been around longer than we knew about fine tuning, um, you understand the way that the uh, God or designer of the universe works because that, that designer is most, more like a mind than anything else we're familiar with. You don't think in terms of causes, you think in terms of reasons. You can understand the action of God if there is some sort of reason that you can begin to even glimpse, right? You can't read God's mind, obviously. But if there is a reason for the universe to be this way, then that leads to some sort of expectation about what we would think being the case. This universe has the property that it is morally significant. Right? It is neither completely uh, random, so that if you're trying to, you know, act in a certain way, there's no way you can influence what goes on. But neither is it totally guaranteed that good things will happen. It's not all sunshine and rainbow and lollipops. We're in the middle case. It's a it's a valuable universe in the sense that if you want something good to happen, you're going to need moral courage and moral fortitude. You're going to need to think, pull your socks up and get on with it. And so that, I think, um, given that that explanation of the universe was around long before fine-tuning and would create a reasonable expectation for the, a universe like ours, which has moral significance, can make people, for example, it doesn't have to be the only reason for the universe, but it is at least there. So it means when we ask what would we expect... We can say that on naturalism we would expect a dead universe because that's what most naturalistic universes are like. That's the lesson of fine-tuning. But we can... There are good reasons for God to make a morally significant universe. So when you get to that bottom floor, when, when the final equations of the universe are up on a board, you can at least say, all right, we have some sort of deeper reason for them being the way that they are rather than some other way. So there is a genuine explanation there, a genuine expectation about the way things would be. And great disagrees. <laughs> so if you want to, see, want to see us sort of debate that out for a chapter, then uh, chapter 8 of the book is what you're after. So um, at this point, I think I'll just leave it there and open for questions, because this is really, I want to leave it sort of unfinished. We don't really know, no one's got you know, a complete understanding of what's going on there. Uh, just to present the way I think of this in a Christian framework, and the way I think it creates problems for a naturalistic framework. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. something that would probably be true on theism. 
if you think of God as a perfectly good being, which is, is the, the hypothesis under discussion. The other thing I want to say about that is um, the, just, the Bible itself teaches that not all morals come from the Bible. I'll say that again. The, mor- the Bible itself teaches that not all moral values come from the Bible. It teaches they come from God, because that's what they're about. But this is uh, Romans chapter 2. That even people who don't know the Bible know good and good at right and wrong in some sense. That, that general sense will do just fine for this article. Well, I'm an economist, not an astrophysicist, but right. I'm highly interested in this nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So hopefully you can answer my question in layman's terms. Um, you said that you're pro uh, believed in the multiverse, mm-hmm. um, which you don't. Um, can the belief in the multiverse through coexist with the belief in God? Mm-hmm. If not, why? Um, so, uh, I think the multiverse is an open possibility. So I'm not deciding one way or another. I think if... So, from Geraint's point of view, uh, God is kind of a non-explanation, um, in which case, you know, what's left in the field is then the multiverse. So he probably has a higher stake in it than I do, but it's a possible way the universe could be. Um, uh, but, uh, so my view on the, on the multiverse is, is uh, that it's science, I think. I think there, there have been some actually quite senior, quite influential cosmologists who said that if this is not science, what on earth are we doing? Right? If you can't see it, then you, how are you supposed to observe it? We're supposed to be doing empirical things. I think there is a way in which uh, it produces predictions about our universe, and so we can at least look at those predictions to see if it works. So that's fine. The, the way I think that this is put together is the way I think that the fine-tuning still points towards theism is just the fine-tuning is the best handle we have on trying to do this with theism and naturalism. Right? Take the best understanding of physics that we have and try to work out, you know, what are the, are we in the case where there's lots of different codes and only a few of them produce life, or can life happen any other way? And we can do that with the laws of nature we have, and we end up being in this sort of one in a trillion case. Um, if um, the reason why I don't think the multiverse affects this is simply because we don't have a theory of the multiverse by which we can apply this principle. If one turns up tomorrow, then we'll head off and do the same thing. It's entirely possible that, however, you need to fine-tune your multiverse, you, your universe generator here. Uh, otherwise, you just produce a whole heap of duds. So there's, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm actually less skeptical than some scientists about the multiverse, but I don't think it affects the way I put this argument together. What's your perspective on how the cosmological argument would interact with the multiverse theory in the sense that if you want to avoid an infinite regress, there must be something that is uh, timeless, but then if you're looking at the multiverse, What theories are there that would have that multiverse be timeless? Right. Or else then it's like what caused the multiverse from the cosmological argument? Yeah. So there's a separate set of ideas which just say, all right, regardless of what the universe is like, why is it there at all? Um, and within that, it even splits off. Like, uh, it looks like our universe has a beginning, which would be a pretty weird thing if you know, it doesn't have an explanation. Um, how does that interact with the multiverse? One of the problems is that the, for, you know, 
As a physicist, I want a model. Right? If you're going to tell me how physical reality is, then I want to be able to use predictions from that right, to do science. And so I want equations. Um, and there's a whole heap of multiverse ideas, and they're all sort of toy models, as you say, as we call them in physics, where things are just um, massively oversimplified and we don't really know what's going on. And there's all sorts of issues with even even getting probabilities out of the models, but a lot of them that model is actually true. So um, there's a whole heap of questions there. The important thing on two levels is, uh, even if there was a multiverse, all the questions about um, why is there anything that exists at all, that I'm a thin sort of one family of cosmological arguments, that, that question is totally still there. Um, it, it, I mean, whatever, Whatever uh, Einstein's granddaughter writes down on the blackboard, you know, you still have the question that actually Stephen Hawking put quite well in his book, uh, Great History of Time. Why is there, what breathes life into the equations to give them a universe to describe? Why is there something that is described by these equations at all? Because there's, there's no set of equations that can sort of command reality, right? You know, F equals MA says, makes them particles for me. So you just never answer that question. The question of whether the universe is infinitely old or whether there could be a timeless thing that came before it is a quite a weird one. We've gotten to the point where um, it seems like there's a beginning in the universe. If there was something that, that that beginning came from, it would have to be something which didn't have the ordinary geometry of space and time as we know it. In which case is sort of somewhere between physics and um, Alice in Wonderland. It's very hard to know what's going on. Um, but that, that is a case of, yeah, we don't really know what's going on. Maybe there's some sort of way of describing some previous state. Maybe quantum cosmology comes in and just tells us all exactly what happens. It's kind of hard to know. The state of the, the art is, it looks like there's a beginning in, and it, it, if it's not a complete beginning of the universe, there's, there's something very weird going on beforehand, which wouldn't even be describable with space. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, okay, so like one quick thing was with the code thing, I'm guessing like it was random, not just something like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Yeah, yeah. And another question is like, um, yeah, can the Christian believe and believe in intelligent life form other than humans like coexist? Like, intelligent oh, yeah. Life? So, uh, I, I found, I talk to amateur astronomy societies about all sorts of stuff, and no matter what I've talked about, I get the question, is there life elsewhere in the universe? Every time. So that I can talk about, like, anyway. Um, my own little winch there for a second. I don't think there's a problem there. I think the best work that's actually been done on this, um, I, I don't find in the Bible anything that says we're the only life forms that exist in the universe. As in, like, the only intelligent kind of life. Or all the intelligent life, or, you know, I, I just don't find anything one way or another. I think one of the most interesting things that we've done on this was actually a set of novels by C.S. Lewis called his Space Trilogy, where he imagined going to Mars and finding life and going to Venus and finding life. And it's almost, um, what, you know, what if life on Earth had taken a you know, left turn to Albuquerque and turned out differently? Like, what if they were just sort of in perfect harmony with the air? And actually, the one in Venus is, is kind of um, rewind back to the Garden of Eden and, and try again and see what else could happen differently um, in, in that sort of framework. So I, I don't find any anything one way or another. If there's life elsewhere in the universe, then. Okay. 
So if you've got time before you have to head off to your next class, then feel free to stick around and come and ask those extra questions that we didn't get time for. Um, would you join me as we thank him again for coming in for us today? I have a couple of places to direct your attention before you head out. Um, firstly, if this has made you think um, more about uh, whether there's meaning about our universe. Um, and if you'd like to investigate what the Bible has to say about meaning, about who God is, and about what he's done in our world, then we'd love nothing more than to have you at our weekly public meetings. Um, they're on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock, and you can find the details on the back of the handout that you would have gotten as you walked in. 